0: Every year, well, at least last year and this year, we've talked about during the holiday season, Hallmark movies. I have a really quick quiz here to find out which Hallmark movie stereotype are you, Reed. Are you ready to answer these short questions? Yeah. Where would you most want to be stranded? In a small, idyllic town, at the airport, at a ski resort, in a big city, or you don't want to be stranded at all? Small town. Which profession would you like to try? Baker, real estate agent, florist, travel agent, or innkeeper? Mm, Florist. Pick a romantic accoutrement. Chocolate, champagne, caviar, roses, or hot cocoa? Hot cocoa. Pick your favorite flower, because you wanted to be a florist. Tulip, sunflower, daisy, rose, or orchid? Orchid. Pick a state you want to live in. Vermont, Connecticut, Colorado, California, or Washington? Mm, Vermont. You are the Hallmark movie stereotype of being someone afraid for commitment.
1: I don't know. That's not where I have already gone. But, you know, I mean, when, when has Hallmark ever been wrong?
2: Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physicians' practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting
1: our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint episode number 201.
0: I am Reed Smith, and that is Chris Boyer. That's me. I spent the weekend binge watching Hallmark Christmas movies. No, I didn't. We actually don't get Hallmark here in our house, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> There's plenty of them online, I'm sure.
1: Well, here we are back to start the next 200 episodes. If you didn't listen to episode 200, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Go back and check it out. And again, we certainly appreciate all the support and feedback that we got. Certainly appreciate everyone uh, supporting us along this journey. Episode 201, we're going to talk a little bit about online education. But before we do, I did want to give a plug for the website, touchpoint.health. The weekly email, the TPS report, which you can sign up for on the aforementioned website. And also on said websites, you can find out more about other shows on this network. I think we're actually close to somewhere around 20 shows now. All kinds of topics, all kinds of hosts. So be sure to go check that out. Touchpoint.health, rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to be listening or streaming. And I look forward to talking a little bit more at the end of the show about some of the episodes coming up here at the end of the year But before we jump into today, we're going to take a quick pause, and we'll be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors'
0: sure is. And read. consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating.
1: Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty.
0: And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So recently I had a conversation with someone that works in higher education and they were talking about the... Challenges that higher education has been going through this year. And I know, Reed, you and I have been talking about also throughout the course of this podcast. We've had a couple of episodes around medical education and how those changes are occurring too. Mm-hmm. So, I figured it might be a good time for us to kind of revisit that topic, particularly when we're looking back now over this very difficult year and uh, talk about the impact of that on online medical education and also like clinical education, you know, CMEs, CNEs, and things like that.
1: As a parent of a couple of school-age kids, I don't have to look very far to see online education happening. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's happened in a variety of ways, You know, a little bit of a hybrid model, certainly, and even dedicated when they've been quarantined, which has happened a time or two. And so I've been able to kind of see realistically kind of how that works and where some of the pluses and minuses may be. But we'll get more into that. The first article you found here uh, is actually from Inside Higher Ed. And it's teaching and learning after COVID-19. What better place to start than people that are pretty well doing it consistently that used to be in person or at least predominantly in person? I will say I did do my MBAs, you know, gosh, a lot of years ago now, almost 15 years ago, online, you know, as an executive MBA. And so it was all online at the time, which was a fairly cutting edge.
0: But, you know, I, I see now more and more as people are looking at like completing either MBAs or other kind of, you know, alternate types of, of learning or accreditations or whatever, online seems to be a way. And there's a whole cottage industry that's been created, which is just dedicated to that, which are not necessarily developed or or created within higher ed. When we think about traditional higher ed being these campuses across the country, so to speak, this article is really focusing on the overall online education for higher education. We thought it might be good to use that as sort of grounding to talk about how that will impact what happens in our industry itself. The author... Puts forward three predictions on how our post-pandemic, as he calls it, pedagogy will be altered across the higher ed ecosystem.
1: Pedagogy is that something on a charcuterie board? Is that a type <laughs> of cheese? Wasn't sure. Anyway, uh, so yeah. So let's let's look at these these three predictions, if you will. The first one he points out. Is blended learning will dramatically increase. Well, I just I mean, I said that just now with even my kids and they're not in higher ed. I mean, they're they're in grade school, middle school, that kind of thing a couple of points he, he he references that quality online learning programs are high input operations requiring both time to develop and significant investment to to run and i think that's right you know i mean i think you know we even saw this with with telehealth and, and virtual care right you flip to the easiest thing teams Slack, Zoom, WebEx type platforms for care delivery even. And that's probably what a lot of people will do initially to create education because it allows you to put someone in front of someone else in in a virtual setting. But to do it in the right way, certainly it does require a lot of investment. You know, around virtual instruction, for example, and and you think about things where like, you know, you need to be able to answer questions in those types of things. Right. So it's like, how do you do that in a virtual sense?
0: Yeah. You know, and this year really proves it right. What we did from virtual learning, we did it out of necessity. And because Mm -hmm. we moved Mm -hmm. so quickly, what we basically replicated was the in-classroom learning On a virtual setting, right? So put the instructor in front of a bunch of students that are on Zoom, so to speak. The biggest future benefits of virtual instruction will come after professors and students return to their physical classrooms, because they're going to have a much more widely shared understanding of digital mediums for education. And really, these are being complementary, not substitutes for that face-to-face learning environment. I mean, why do you have to be there?
1: I mean, don't get me wrong. And this goes back to you can't teach everybody the same way, but some people function better like in that classroom environment, right? Like they need the camaraderie. They need to be around people. There's other people like I, I did just fine online. My son does just fine online. My daughter does better in person. Obviously people learn in very different ways, but we'll see this hybrid increase.
0: He ends the prediction here by saying, Precious classroom time will be just that, right? It'll be like dedicated space where you do things less of sitting and listening to a lecture, which you can do online, and more for productively utilized for discussions, debates, guided practices, grand rounds in our space, right? You know, things that need more of a hands on learning lab, that sort of thing. What's the second point that he brings up here, Reed? Online education will be a
1: strategic priority at every institution. Like I said, I did my my MBA online and and you see some of the leading organizations and institutions around the country providing online opportunities. I get targeted ads from like MIT and Harvard, different places about, you know, be a data scientist in 20 weeks or, or whatever, right? Like some of that kind of stuff. So, you know, there are certain people doing those types of things on these certificate based courses and, but now we'll see and he points out that there'll be very few colleges and universities left that, that aren't doing anything. The future of this is that I'm sure leaders, and again, there's, it's just very analogous to, to hospitals and healthcare systems and, and providers, I guess I should say, around virtual care. There'll be very few that don't have that virtual care option. And this will be top of mind as so we have talked about digital and those types of things. As they think about how we provide care, you know, this is going to be top of mind in planning and budgeting and innovation and investment and all those types of things. Well, on the higher ed side and on the education side of the equation, there'll be very few. He talks about, you know, presidents and provosts and deans and trustees and all those types of things that won't be focused on this. And they'll have to bring their aptitude up to a certain level of really understanding what this means and what the opportunity is both for not just the education side, but revenue and and just new business models, quite honestly.
0: Well, and often in higher ed that you describe, like MIT, Harvard, Yale, et cetera, that have these online programs, they're disjointed from the traditional in-learning, right? They're, they're like even developed separately. The curriculum might be related, but developed separately by different people. Decentralized and distributed online course development and student support functions will be centralized. So now these departments, it could be the School of Medicine or the School of Law or whatever it might be, they will be developing programs that are for both mediums. Rather than have this like separate online education department over here that kind of you know pulls curriculum and repurposes it for revenue generation purposes, we're talking about now a unified approach across all campuses a heady prediction, right, for what the future will be. But the point here is to integrate this into academic leadership structures for really resiliency for the future state. Because we, you know, the, the pandemic has done one thing for us, it's created this world where we're not sure if in the future we're going to have to go back to a hybrid learning model. The
1: final prediction that he talks about is that all these organizations are going to start rethinking what their existing and potential online program management partnerships will look like. And so, obviously, there's there's a big play in this space, like there is anything around technology providers. And I think a lot of these organizations have even outsourced or just put their brand on a platform or an opportunity or something like that. It's not it's truly not really part of the organization so much like you were just talking about different people even creating the curriculum. Well, sometimes it's even it's even people outside the organization. And so I think a lot of this is going to be rethought, you know, on how how that's done and you know, who's involved and how much of it they own and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I also wonder if this is gonna extend past our physical borders of the United States, right? <clears throat> if this suddenly allows us to develop partnerships with multiple academic centers across the world, so to speak, where you get the best minds that are maybe affiliated through an online program with some higher Ivy League schools and so to speak, you know, that model has already been built. Mm -hmm. But it's, again, been built in a very kind of disjointed, separate sort of way. Now we're talking about this more of an integrated into the overall higher ed experience. And, you know, naturally in our minds, we think about how does that kind of all fit and impact the industry that we're in, which is healthcare, education, CMEs, etc. So, why don't we do this read? After the break, why don't we come back and talk a little bit about the impacts of that on our industry and then the role of new technologies that could really greatly facilitate this in healthcare education? Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media.
1: Let's take a look now at uh, the impact on uh, on healthcare and healthcare providers specifically. You found an article for the the JAMA Network, which obviously is a great publication and one that is is well thought of in the educational space relative to healthcare,
0: called "The Transformational Effects of COVID 19 on Medical Education." This post, which, by the way, is very, very dense, there's a lot of good content in this one. So we encourage you to check the link in the show notes to get more. We're not going to cover all of that. They start off by saying that the pandemic this year was a source of disruption, but it also can be viewed as a catalyst for the transformation of medical education. And moreover, healthcare professionals have to embrace new competencies that are better suited for addressing health challenges today through digital means. Now, we know that through like telemedicine and care, but the article is really extending this into medical education and how technology can be used in medical education.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Dr. V has been a proponent of this for a long time and has even done some work with Rice University down there in Houston around, you know, social media education, digital education for Pre-med, medical school students, residents, fellows, that that kind of thing. So this is obviously, whether it's him or others, a place that people have participated. But I think to your point, much like care delivery, like we keep harping on, COVID-19 has accelerated how it's done. And so that's kind of what we're talking about here is not so much the topic but how it's actually distributed and uh, how the training is actually happening. They actually point out and go through some current and future threats to the health of communities
0: and, and what those trends may be. Absolutely. And what they did is they actually looked at how academic health systems have modified their programs this year and are using those as predictors for potential future trends that could happen. The first one they talk about is supporting a robust public health response to the pandemic. One of the things that they saw was the types of courses were really squarely built on the way public health should be addressed. And what we're talking about here is that you know electives were created to allow testing, case characterization, and contact tracing to become learning experiences while supporting local public health response. Really taking uh, training and actually using it in an application, in a real-life application. So that's kind of an interesting mashup, so to speak. And I can understand that because we are dealing with this unprecedented pandemic, right? So all hands on deck, so to speak. But they predict that that could be something that is used in the future, that public health and education can may even be combined.
1: Well, it kind of bleeds into the second point a little bit, which is the uh, adapting the curriculum to to current issues in, in real time. Uh, which I think is is interesting and certainly s- supportive of that first point in, in a good use case. So they say that faculty used foundational knowledge in you know psychology, sociology, humanities, et cetera, to analyze the the ethical challenges in rationing care, for example, professionalism challenges uh, uh, of caring for patients during a pandemic. You know, the challenges of homelessness, food insecurity, poor access to healthcare, all those types of things allowed them to really, you know, adapt curriculum and and think about what does this mean for for education. You know, it's that real-time experience that probably historically
0: they would not have gotten. Again, these kind of points, these these trends kind of lend itself to one another. One of the other things that they they saw as a big trend here is the need to graduate a class of well-prepared physicians on time and without lowering standards. And this year of all years put an undue pressure on the system in order to do that. So well, how did schools respond? Well, they prioritized clinical learning experiences for students closer to graduation to ensure that they're adequately prepared for the 2020 intern workforce. And because there's been an absence of like clinical learning sites, be- because quite frankly, a lot of things has kind of converted to addressing the pandemic, educators had to redesign core Clerkships to allow students to continue to advance their clinical knowledge through faculty guided remote learning strategies. Case conferences, and even participation in video conferences of inpatient and outpatient encounters. It's been a complete reshift. I, again, I, it's not lost on us, right? That this is because of the pandemic. We had to do it in an emergent way. But they predict that that will actually, again, much like our point earlier before the break, this will lead to a hybrid world in the future where maybe this could be the model of education in the future.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The next thing they point out, uh, which I think is kind of interesting, is protecting limited educational resources and and trying to treat uh, everybody uh, equitably. There was a lot of uh, you know from from the educators from the institutions or, around the country to forego the use of visiting rotations uh, when selecting candidates for residency cycles. Of course, I don't I don't really understand that world. I obviously am not a physician. I haven't been through this, but I guess. You know, trying to be equitable in the way that, you know, they line up resources and opportunities for folks and cut down on some of the, in this case, visiting
0: rotations. They even had to, in some cases, categorize students, senior students, as essential workers so they could stay to complete their rotations and graduate on time. We talked about this in earlier episodes when we were talking about how New York responded to the pandemic. They even took some of those graduates or those seniors soon to be graduates. And put them on the front line to help out. This whole concept of like really changing the way we responded to crisis, so to speak. And that leads to the last trend where they say it's to engage in crisis communication and active change leadership. Professional organizations, accrediting bodies, licensing boards, and even government agencies had to partner with medical schools during the pandemic response to kind of shift. The way they are doing the accreditation shift, the way they're actually associating, you know, aligning to the response, so that students could actually complete what they were trying to do in time and actually be put meaningful to work. And I think that that's going to be an important takeaway from this pandemic as we look towards the future.
1: It, it is, and they they kind of round out the article by talking about the fact that. Not only did these medical st- school students, you know, continue to learn, but in, in, in many cases, in a lot of these circumstances, it actually accelerated, you know, the attainment of, uh, they say, these types of competencies. Obviously, pandemic, not good, but, you know, here's a way that a particular industry in vertical, um, you know, was able to adapt and in, in, in morph to an extent that we may ultimately see some, some further, you know, long-term benefit from.
0: You know that's interesting because I'm reminded of the McKinsey study that showed the rapid adoption of technology, how it's happened over the years, or you know, it's in, in the pandemic very quickly. Has this also caused us to maybe rethink and rapidly shift and change the way traditional institutions like education are happening, and maybe even sped those programs curriculums up faster? I'm wondering about that. Yeah. Well, let's end with how technology can play a role in medical education.
1: Yeah, let's do it. You found another article from mededpublish.com. It's a very specific website. (laughs) It's uh, a vision of the use of technology in medical education after the COVID-19 pandemic.
0: And of course, they start off, as every article starts off, when they talk about the impacts of the pandemic to whatever the subject of that article is, they'll start off by saying it's highly unlikely that we're going to return to the previous way that we've done things. Things that happened before the pandemic has shifted us unalterably towards the future. And in this particular case, the contribution of technology for enhancing teaching and learning. The author positions that this change is transformative. It will be a major change into how individuals and wider social systems within each individual community lives and works.
1: Did they also start the article by hoping we're staying safe during the pandemic?
0: (laughs) They should. I I think that should go hand in hand, right?
1: Yeah, that's how every email and LinkedIn message I get starts. So I was just curious. (laughs) You know, certainly technology, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. We've talked about care delivery throughout this uh, episode as well. And we've talked about the educa- delivery of education. So if we're delivering information, it, it sounds to me like, you know, obviously technology certainly uh, is playing a big role and will continue to play a bigger role. And they talk about at the present time that the process of transformation in the increased use of technology and medical education is within its early phases Uh, What appears to be rapid and progressive individual and collective acceptance, commitment to the use of
0: technology to enhance teaching and learning, they say. That makes sense. We are in the early phases. Again, unprecedented times. We are faced (laughs) to do things differently. That's right. Further on, the introduction of adaptive learning, offers a personalized approach that will enable all students to access a wider range of learning resources and provide information to educators and how students are learning from their experience. Okay, when we say the term adaptive learning, you know what that means, Reed. Now we're talking about artificial intelligence. Oh, adaptive learning. I like that. Because now we're using technology to help us adapt future learnings based on how the individual is responding to curriculum. So let's dive into the two main things that he actually pulls out as being these transformative technologies. The application of artificial intelligence. It's interesting, right? I mean, we've
1: talked about this a lot. They say creates, quote unquote, thinking machines to provide learning content and assessments that can adapt interactively uh, with students using text and voice. That's pretty cool. Is that good as a person, uh, a live in-person class with an instructor and that kind of thing? I don't know, probably over time. I mean, that's how that works, right? Through you know AI, it's getting better over time. So robotic tutors, they even point out that are adaptive to problem
0: solving. Wow, robotic tutors. Does that mean like an iPad that's stuck on like a Roomba or something, like a bro- a broom handle that like drives around?
1: <laughs> yeah, probably. No, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, you know, apparently, this has been used uh, alongside you know school age kids, you know, to facilitate kind of self guided, self
0: regulated. They say learning. That is interesting, and that you know that implies that now the. Educational programs can start to be adaptive to how the individual reacts to it. So if you need more support and you prefer text messages, your educational program will start to embed that sort of technology. The second piece is the part that always feels so science fiction to me, though. Read extended reality, providing students with learning experiences that blend physical and virtual elements. And that could be through augmented reality or a totally virtual immersive experience through virtual reality. That just sounds so pie in the sky, right? It does. Are you sitting in a virtual classroom with, you know, (laughs) like
1: a desk that squeaks? Like, how does that? (laughs) But they talk about that the intention certainly is to replicate a real life experience, of course. I mean, that's the point of VR, uh, but even AR to some extent. Uh, a real life experience that can be delivered through headsets, mobile devices, etc. You know, we see this all the time with video gaming, certainly in some other other areas, uh, and it's an emergent trend. Real life experiences such as touch and you know the physical
0: sensations and things like that that make this real. Those haptic experiences or haptic simulations, as as the article describes that, that's kind of weird to me. Does that mean that in the future state you could virtually perform surgery and the way the pressure of your hand on the virtual reality scalpel will react like how it would react when it's doing actual surgery? I mean, we already do it, right? With, you know, like Da Vinci, and, you know, the robotic piece
1: of surgery – I just wonder then, and maybe we're already doing some of this stuff. I probably should read up on it a little bit, but I mean, <laughs> if we can do, do you know, cause I've, I've been around a lot of Da Vinci procedures, for example, and the, you know, the surgeon is still in the room, right? Like he's just over in the corner doing the robotic surgery. You know, I wonder like at what point do you see the world renowned leader in fill in the blank and he's not in your town and he's doing the surgery from, Palo Alto or Italy or wherever
0: the authors refer to this as the anytime anywhere aspect of using technology it's putting together artificial intelligence that knows how you want to learn along with extended reality through AR or VR and they say that you know this offers new opportunities for specific groups of medical students such as increasing access to participation for part-time students, maybe even being able to do it when you are free, like you may have a, a day job where you're actually in a clinical setting and then at nights you're doing additional education. Well, imagine you can come home and cram for a surgery, like do it at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're awake, right? I'm not saying yep. that's the best thing, but it allows for provided also providing shortened programs for gifted and talented students, those that maybe learn faster too. Interesting
1: times and a a lot of opportunities, certainly in this day and age, in this day and
0: month, actually, of, of what technology can do in our lives. And this is just one more example. Let's go to another example through an interview that I recently did with Stephen Hemowitz, who's the CEO of HealthCourse and also a company called Real CME. And as you can imagine from the title of Real CME, uh, he spends a lot of time working with organizations, with healthcare organizations, developing CME, CNE, and even patient education programs through online platforms. And he has a a clinical background, but he also is very well adept to all the different types of learning styles that can occur. And he and I talked about the intersection of using all of these now digital channels in which we can do education to create the future CME programs. It's an interesting interview. So let's listen to that after the break. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast. And today, I'm delighted to be talking with Steve Hamowitz, who's president and CEO of HealthCourse. Steve, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Well, I'm excited to talk to you today about a very important topic. But before we jump in, many people listening in may not know about you or your background. Would you mind sharing a little introduction to yourself?
2: Uh, Well, I started out on the clinical side. I am a physician by training. But I left practice uh, fairly early on in my career and I have been focused on education uh, for healthcare professionals and patients and consumers for, for the last 20 years or so now. have had a big focus on distance learning, uh, digital education, started out uh, in this field probably back in the uh, late 90s and doing it ever since. So, wait, you've been
0: doing digital education since the late 90s. I could imagine way back then it's a lot different than it was today.
2: Yeah, it, it's, it really has. My, my <laughs> first, uh, the first company that I started uh, back in the late 90s was actually uh, very heavily focused on healthcare professional video uh, production and bringing uh, kind of uh, leading experts to the uh, patients and consumers. And back then, I, I remember how difficult it was for people to have it when they have dial-up connections and things like that. And uh, video was so new to the internet, of course. Uh, you know, now it's, uh, it's quite different. But uh, we still have always had a very strong focus on, on bringing quality education to the professional, to the consumer, doing it in different ways. For the last uh, dozen years now, my focus really has been on technology and we're more of an educational technology uh, focused, uh, company as compared to a content company. So our focus really has kind of merged into, uh, into, uh, software and development. And we work with, uh, providers and, and uh, educators from around the country.
0: This is a great time to be talking about this because if anything, 2020 has done a lot of things to our industry, but the one of the biggest changes uh, that I've noticed is that from a perspective or, or perception, I should say, of digital and using digital tools and technology to, to be introduced into the, into the whole spectrum of the healthcare space, digital has really advanced and matured over the last year, even though it really hasn't. It's just the perception has advanced and matured over the last year. Before the pandemic hit, everybody did have their phones and they did have the ability to communicate with one another. But now, because we are such a remote workforce, such a remote industry, even with telemedicine, et cetera, digital has really come to its own.
2: Yeah, I think there's never been a time when when more effective uh, distance learning is needed. There's probably never been a time when people are looking for different kinds of solutions. Uh, I think people were pretty focused on the more traditional distance learning, you know, webinars, asynchronous modules, things like that. But um, with the with with this pandemic, of course, and the fact that we're so focused now on on digital learning and distance learning, I think people are are looking for alternatives and 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 different kinds of approaches to distance learning.
0: Let's let's first talk about professional education, uh, CME, CNE, sort of that that professional discourse. One of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of healthcare professionals in the past they traditionally. Kind of sought in person ways to uh, get that that knowledge, that training. It may be through grand rounds. It may have been through attending uh, lectures, attending courses on universities or such, such of things. What have you seen over your time working in this space? How has that shifted? Where are the trends heading in that in that regard?
2: In a, a lot of surveys that you'll see, on-site education, going to conferences, grand rounds is something that typically. Uh, has always been expressed and as a preference for a lot of clinicians. But the constraints of their of their budgets and their time have really also have led to a big focus on on digital learning because it's just it's more efficient from a from a, a cost and time perspective. So uh, I think that the preference to exchange ideas with peers is always there. And it's always the way that uh, clinicians learn and the way that they, uh, you know, share ideas is the most effective way to kind of get them to, uh, uh, to you know, uh, engage at a higher level of cognition. <laughs> but uh, the fact is that with uh, the constraints that we see over the last, uh, you know, 10 years now, the ability to do all that travel and to, uh, you know, have those large budgets to attend conferences is, is, is definitely limited, which is why people have uh, you know, focus more on uh, on digital learning as an alternative and as an option uh, for those who can't who can't do those travels.
0: Well, I think an advancement too of just you know having the smartphone or having computers that now have the ability to very quickly be able to uh, provide these video delivery networks to even do you know synchronous video communication with multiple people across the world. Frankly, has facilitated that as well.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely, and I think that. You know, when people think of distance learning and digital education, probably the most common thing they think about is a webinar, is an online webinar. And those are extremely popular right now. uh, And they have been. The issue with them right now is that there's so much of their lives being, you know, taking place across Zoom calls and Zoom uh, meetings that now a bit of a concern that they're being overwhelmed by these kind of opportunities. and, And this is something that we have to think about. I, I always remind people that that healthcare providers are are, are extremely um, busy right now because they're they're dealing with a with a you know even if they're not directly dealing with uh, with COVID they're dealing with the impact of it peripherally and things are just have to be kept in mind about the the amount of time that people have and the amount of availability and the fact that they're having to deal with some really pretty key issues right now and they in their own professionalized but also at home i mean they're dealing with the same things that the rest of us are dealing with with kids kids you know schooling from home and 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 having a you know virtual classroom so i mean the, everyone is dealing with scheduling issues and, and things like that so i just remind people about the level of burnout that you had in the community uh before covid and the fact that you were seeing uh, you know really disturbing levels of uh burnout and and very low levels of job satisfaction and and uh their joy at work levels were really kind of a, you know reaching a, a very low level over the last few years. People were leaving the profession, you know, physicians, nurses, you know, both having those kinds of a, a data very easily found in, in the literature. So when you think about the effect of this pandemic and adding to that those um, uh, you know anxieties and concerns and stresses in their lives, we just have to think about how much time they really have how much interest they have right now in participating in these things, what's going to drive participation and what's going to drive engagement when you're dealing with so much right now in both professional and personal lives.
0: Well, what are some of those things? I mean, I, I obviously, in my mind, I think about, yeah, I have Zoom fatigue, obviously. I think everyone does, right? And these video conferences and in the place of meetings, that there is a lot to be desired from those kinds of interactions. But But I also see, though, that in my free time, if you know, whatever free time I do have, and I'm not a, a healthcare professional, I do consume a lot of content through other screens like, you know, Netflix and other things. Do you see that this is express as kind of rolling over into the healthcare education space as well?
2: Well, I think that there is definitely a role for both synchronous and asynchronous learning. And I think that uh, it, there's definitely going to be a consumption of content that is both more traditional video based content. But I think that we this is the time, I believe. And I think that we had to go here anyway. But I think COVID and this pandemic is kind of like accelerating the process. But I think that the majority of content that they were consuming was what has been done in their more traditional format where you have a speaker, you have an expert, he or she is speaking and they're observing and they're listening or if they're taking a module it's an asynchronous module they're 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 reading something or they're watching something and they're and they're you know answering a, a couple of questions and it's done and they're doing that on their own time and once it's completed it's done and 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 they move on to some, to something else so i think that the cons- consumption of this kind of content will continue but i do feel and i and i see it happening that there's got to be other kinds of components added to that experience to uh, maintain a level of engagement that we that are necessary because we we obviously have to keep educating healthcare professionals there's a lot of new information out there things are changing drastically of course and 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 this pandemic will drive uh, further changes of course both from a process standpoint as well as a clinical standpoint so you know education right now is is absolutely pivotal but we just have to kind of consider, other models besides just passive viewing and asynchronous cases or, or videos or modules that they may take. And I think that we're kind of seeing more of a, uh, I mean, we're, we're kind of big fans of the more of a constructivist learning uh, model where the teacher's role is more of a, of, a, of a guide and as a facilitator. And there's not always an expert driven approach where we believe a lot more in knowledge sharing. And it goes back to your discussion earlier about the idea of why people like going to conferences. I mean, I think people will tell you, if you actually read surveys, people like going to conferences, not because they have a better viewing of the experts at the microphone, but it's because they can have a more of a chance to talk to their peers. And I think that if you kind of look at distance learning now and where it can emerge to kind of take more of the innovative pathway, it's going to be models in which you let people uh, accomplish that, but in the, in the digital space, so more sharing of information, more uh, expert facilitation as, as compared to just pure information being presented to a learner and uh, allowing uh, teachers and experts and learners to kind of you know, share in the experience and share authority and share expertise as compared to being a very much a, a one-way direction.
0: What you're describing here sounds like a kind of a robust approach or... Or how should I say it, like a, a more structured approach, this this constructive learning you said. But not everybody is adept to doing that um, with these with with digital. So where do you see that? Is it is there is there a need for a more formalized framework to how to how how do you, you know, how do you start to to educate people on how to do this more effectively?
2: Well, I think it starts with a kind of a some 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 themes that have to be considered in developing educational initiatives and programs and also how educators view themselves. I mean, most educators still view themselves as being the people who teach and uh, as compared to being the you know facilitators of, of learning and understanding that a lot of knowledge occurs because of social interactions compared to just lecturing and this kind of traditional podium speaking. And I think that is one of the most important things, and there's many ways to accomplish that. Some are very structured, some are not. But I think some of the that that theme, as we move into the post-COVID era, and we kind of are gonna, I'm sure, see, of course, more live interactions as uh, over the next over the next few years, of course, as we get as we emerge from this. But there still is going to be a very strong focus on distance learning as we as we um, you know. In any time foreseeable future, and I think that that kind of theme and that kind of uh, point of view, as uh, viewing ourselves as curators of knowledge as compared to providers of information, will go a very long way. And then how we do that, there's just so many there are so many ways. I mean, yeah, there's 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 ways to do this, uh, in which there's uh, synchronous communication, there's relational uh, approaches. Where you know you're really trying to establish you know group learning and and some and some digital face-to-face interactions and there's with the social media skills that are out there right now and with the tools that we have out there right now there's there's many ways to you know, to do this you know, we've taken an approach to kind of create a more structured environment for small group learning and it allows people to uh, use a curriculum but use it not just hey, here's your list of uh, modules, go take them. And here's a couple of videos to watch. But we actually have designed something where we give people the chance to do some prep work, do some modules on their own, but the intent of getting up to speed and doing some foundational learning so they can participate in a synchronous interaction with their group and really uh, be better uh, contributors and, and actively get involved with that kind of experience. And there's also group task where they each uh, contribute to a portion of a group task. There's ways to do this in a more uh, kind of a casual, uh, you know, fashion, but there's also a way to kind of do it in a more structured way. But the, the theme of it is, once again, teaching doesn't stop with the information. The learning begins with sharing and making sense of the information and collaborating with peers and discussing it with peers. I mean, that's the theme of any of these kinds of approaches
0: wanted to to actually ask a question follow-on question about social media because I've been involved in social media and healthcare for over a decade now and um, and there's been a, a huge push even prior to this pandemic of getting physicians onto social media in a very realistic uh, you know and, and authoritative way so to speak one of the byproducts of like Twitter and even some of the the more focused social media platforms that are, are designed for the healthcare professionals they're using social media in a different way how do you see social fitting into this role of the new uh digital education or distance learning
2: yeah that's uh, interesting so one one really uh important thing that we have focused on i, I just want to kind of speak from my from our own direct experience so over the last nine months now since the, uh, we've been you know faced with uh some of the uh, you know the discontinuation of so much li- of live interaction is that what we've offered and what we've encouraged is to let clinicians who are engaged with mentoring uh, small groups to bring these groups together on, on their own. So rather than to like you know, say, hey, you know, here's uh, 30 or 40 people uh, that we've brought together for you via some kind of promotion, and you know, you're now the, the mentor of that group, we say, hey, you know what? You have your own LinkedIn network. You have your professional network that you can recruit from. Why don't you bring your group together? Think about who you would want in your group. Use your social media channels to promote the, the fact that you're kind of bringing this group together and, and bring people that you think would optimally benefit the, from this experience. And this way, when they do come together, chances are the people know each other to a certain extent. They're connected in one way or another, and the group is so much more cohesive and the potential for engagement is so much more improved because there's um, there's a connection there already, and they're using their social media to stay connected, and they're using them to uh, the the various social media to bring them together to begin with. So I think that's just a it's just a fundamental difference in how people typically engage because they usually get pulled into learning. Uh, experiences from some kind of, you know, email blast or newsletter that they're going to get. But, you know, getting, getting an invitation from someone that you actually know or maybe you have worked with in the past or maybe someone that you trained with is a really different experience. If you're following someone uh, on LinkedIn or you follow them on Twitter and all of a sudden they announce, hey, we'd love to have some, you know, uh, people join my group. That's a very different kind of way to recruit people than it is to get a just kind of an anonymous email from a a publishing site. Well, now
0: we've been talking about professional education in the space, but you also work with organizations on uh, doing patient education. So how do you see what the trends that are going on in the professional education space? Are they impacting how you also work with organizations on patients or potential patients?
2: We've started getting involved with patient education. I mean, historically, we were involved with a lot of patient education and uh, more more traditional content-focused development and 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 distributing that content to the right people, you know, either people with, with dealing with a certain condition or or, or caring for a certain uh, you know uh, for a relative with with, uh, with that condition. But we're also we also now are experimenting with the same kinds of of uh, formats where patients of like mind are being brought together by a healthcare professional leader, some kind of community leaders. It could be a peer coach. It it could be a patient navigator. It could be a clinician as well. It could be um, an NP or PA that are bringing these these groups together. I think, again, patients really want the opportunity to share experience and not just receive the one-way broadcast. And I think it has a tremendous application for advocacy groups. I mean, this kind of approach, yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a, a big application for this kind of model. I mean, patients will learn the same way. I mean, we're all adult, we're all adult learners, and uh, you know, patients will learn the same way, and they will definitely want the opportunity to kind of share and make sense of the information uh, after the information is presented to them. So I think there's, uh, you know, major opportunities to kind of take that approach as well for patients. I found in
0: my experience, too, that whenever we create uh, educational information or any kind of online education for physicians or the the healthcare professional audience, and we post it on a public site like a YouTube or even on a website, that there are a substantial amount of patients that flock to that just because they're more, some of them are more motivated to learn uh, about these tools. They actually want to hear what we actually will communicate. Communicate to, to the healthcare professionals, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're going to see uh, when it comes to patient education, it's been done in such a traditional way for so many years now. I, I really believe that we're going to see a shift in that, uh, you know, in, in, on the patient side as well, because um, traditional patient education is very encyclopedic, it's very very one way. It, it's 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 a very one way kind of you know lecture kind of a style from an expert with the impact, again, of being so attuned to distance learning and digital media, I just think we're going to find that people want more than that. And they're going to uh, really, either it's going to be a kind of a, a groundswell where, where patients kind of create this on their own, or, you know, advocacy groups are going, to, are going to provide that structure for them. But either way, I think this is going to be a big shift in, in, uh, for patient education as well.
0: You know, and also looking forward very briefly, you know, when we talk about like what the future is post-pandemic, sure, we're going to return to our normal lives, but I don't think that we're going to get into 100% back to the old way. I I envision it to be more of a hybrid. Would you agree?
2: Yeah. And I think we're going to get into a more of a hybrid situation as well with the learnings that we've had here, because I think that we are really um, have seen a lot of experimentation over the last nine months and people are trying different things and we're seeing that some things really work really work well and some things really did not work that well and we're going to be able to take those learnings and 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 move forward with them so we're more comfortable in maintaining uh, digital and distance learning for certain things and also knowing that, hey, you know what, this would be a lot better if we can do this face to face and do this in a venue, knowing what we've learned from here. But I, I like the idea and I like what I'm seeing now is that people are trying different things. Uh, and I think that's so important right now is like uh, not to just buy the additional webinar or, 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 or the Zoom meeting or to just kind of like put things together in that sense, but to really try to push the envelope a bit and explore different kinds of approaches and platforms, because that's the way we're going to move into that future hybrid in a really effective way. We're going to see what the limitations are for distance learning and not going to be going to be like, Oh, thank God this is over. We can get back to live stuff again. That's not uh, going to be the impact. If we learn from this and we learn from, you know, what's worked nicely and what's really worked probably better to a certain extent than some of the uh, live venues, we can really, kind of move forward in a really informed way. Uh, and that would, that would create a really good hybrid situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Wow. A lot to think about. And I'm, I'm really excited for, uh, as you're painting the picture here, Steven, as to what the future could look like, because I really feel that this is really the promise of how technology can be used. It should always be augmenting our lives and, 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 and supplementing what we do, not replacing You know, the, the, I know that we're replacing it now in the, in the pandemic, but you know, it shouldn't be that in the future. So that's really exciting.
2: I think that's a really good point. Augmentation is really an important point because I think that if things do uh, um, become more of a hybrid situation, I think we will see events taking place that might have been really large scale events in the past. They still occur, but they occur potentially on a smaller scale. But it doesn't mean that we can't all benefit from those events. You know, there could be a situation where there's still a major conference and and a lot of people are attending that conference. But even if they do, there's a major digital component to this so that they leave there and the experience continues. And if people are not attending that conference, there's still a really rich experience for them. That to me is the most likely scenario where you kind of have scaled down um, versions of previously very large venues and people kind of taking advantage of all the, 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 the digital augmentations. Well, Stephen, this has been a great conversation. Uh, people listening in
0: may want to know a little bit more about your company and also how they can reach out to you and maybe continue the conversation. Um, what are some ways they can find you online?
2: A lot of the work that we're doing right now is um, based upon the social learning platform that we've been doing, which is gathered.com, uh, uh, just got the word gathered. Uh, com and uh and of course the you know health course is our uh, main uh, site well we'll definitely
0: link to all of those in the show notes I'll also link over to your uh, linkedin account too so people if they want to know a little bit more about you they can connect with you there thank you so much for your time today great insights i really appreciate the conversation
2: oh i enjoyed it as well thank you
1: Special thanks to Stephen. Thanks for uh, coming on the show, talking a little bit about education and more specifically online CME and uh, real time education. It's a uh, it's an interesting place, and I'm sure we'll. Continue to see more of it. There's all kinds of great uh, use cases, or benefits, or reasons to to use it. I guess I should say so. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Let's see what is left this year. I believe I've still got an upcoming uh, webinar with uh, our friends over at Binary Fountain, so you can uh, check that out in the TPS report. Again, that's the weekly email that comes out. Uh, you can sign up over on
0: our website, touchpoint.health, to to uh, to get
1: that. Let's uh,
0: let's do some
1: recommendations.
0: Okay, Reid, I'll start today uh, in the spirit of the season. My wife and I made a conscious decision this year to try to avoid shopping at large, big box retailers, right? Don't get me wrong. Amazon is still very convenient. Target, Mm -hmm. we're in Mm -hmm. Minnesota. Target's very convenient. Arguably, Target is local for us here in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) I'm going to make the recommendation, though, to uh, shop locally wherever you can. You know, this has been a hard pandemic economically for all of our local companies i'm noticing a lot here in minnesota at least a lot of the smaller companies even artists are developing unique ways to go online and offer ways to virtually uh shop we used to have you know christmas markets where you could go walk with thousands of other people and kind of peruse different booths of smaller makers well we can't do that Right, safely, at least not this season. So, I recommend going, trying to find in your local area where some local craftsmen, artismen, or smaller businesses are using online to help sell their wares. And what I'm going to recommend specifically for here people in Minnesota listening in Minnesotamakers.net, which is 100 Minnesota artists that have come together and created an online platform where you can actually review all the different types of crafts that they have available. It's very visual and you can order them online. So that's a very convenient, easy way to kind of keep your money local, so to speak. And that's going to be my recommendation. Nice. Very, very good. I'm
1: recommending uh, Guitar Strings got several guitars between my son and i and found some that i I like you know it's it's hard especially with an acoustic uh guitar there's well i guess any guitar there's a million options certainly Uh, but i've kind of honed in and like the uh, Diodero strings this is light gauge sometimes i'll do medium but these are light gauge uh, phosphor bronze uh they're warm bright balanced toned it says it right here on the box. Anyway, you can get a set of three of these. They're not terribly expensive, especially if they corrode or you'd like to switch them out You know, a fair amount. So it uh, has a corrosion barrier sleeve. So there you go. Wow. There you go. Yeah.
0: yeah. Very helpful.
1: Yes. Yes. Very helpful. And I'm staring at them. I need to put them on said guitars. But anyway do that soon enough. Cool. Well, another great episode, number 201 in the books. Thanks again for all the support. Touchpoint Health is the website. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you happen to be listening to us uh, or streaming, if you will. We'd love to have that support certainly on those platforms and we'd love to have the support by the way of word of mouth. Tell somebody uh, that you work with, maybe a colleague in the industry uh, about the show. We would certainly appreciate uh, the advocacy. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Uh, So Twitter, LinkedIn, probably the best way to track us down. And I would love to hear about topics that you're interested in. Guests we should interview, things like that. So we're coming up on uh, the end of the year. Look for um, kind of our end of year survey. I actually need to kick that out here pretty quick. And a lot of fun stuff coming up. So for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week.